The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So welcome everyone. Many of you in the in our online community, a few here in the room. Got Jensen, our Common Ground's IT person, has been training some of our leaders and volunteers how to do the live stream. So as the weeks go by, hopefully we'll include more and more of our programs on our live stream page. So you might want to bookmark this page for future use, but you can always find it on our homepage and in the weekly email. And you can also sign up for the weekly email from the center on our homepage. There's a link so that you'll get all the updates. I'm hoping everybody is safe out there. In this uncertain time, I know a lot of people, of course, aren't feeling so safe. And my heart goes out. And maybe it's especially a potent time for us to be talking about cultivating wholesome relationships. And, you know, it's relatively easy when, um, you know, those perfect situations when you're with somebody who agrees with you and shares your same values. And it's another thing, you know, when you're two people trying to get the last bit of toilet paper or something like that. Or somebody sneezes by you or something. You know, and we can sort of feel caught by the anxiety that's swirling around us. And one of the things I'm hoping that we're all going to discover, and uh, Scott, our IT person, and I, and Shelley, we're hoping next week to be able to have uh, something for someone, for people who want to, for the last half an hour to um, join in a small group, online small group discussion. So one of the things you might be discussing next week in your smaller groups is, you know, in this time... What does it mean? What is, what is the actual experience of intimacy and non-attachment in relationship with intimacy, being intimate, but not tight? Because we know what it's like when we feel really close, really involved, really connected, but we feel self-conscious or we feel controlling or we feel too seen and we want to withdraw. But how about times when we feel that it, that sort of natural, real exposure of being in relationship could be even something quite simple like just being with our cat or being with a partner we've been with forever. And really, but not in a, not on autopilot in any way. Just just really there without some mediating concept of who that person is or who that beast is, who I am. And then instead of that relationship being a problem to solve or some situation to work through, it actually feels really enlivening and healing. Just those moments of being in relationship feel freeing, like we're getting more than we're giving. It's not work. 
oh, I'm in this relationship, I have to do the work of this relationship. We talk about relationships a lot as work, and they are work at times, I know. I think we all know that. But not always. And so the interesting question maybe to share next week, because it would be totally appropriate in the small groups and maybe at the end of tonight's program we'll open it up to the any questions and comments from the people, the few people in the room, but also um, to the upper right you'll see that live chat and we'll open that up a little bit later. And so people might have some um, stories from their lives or questions to ask about these moments when we really did feel healed and enlivened and free, even in the complexity of relating to another human being or a cat or a dog or a group even. And that's really inspiring. We need to hear these stories just like we need to hear stories where we talk about a relationship or relating to somebody being a lot of work. Those are useful to hear because then we can deconstruct it like, what was it that made it feel like so much work? Why did it get so entangled? Why did it feel so heavy? Why was there so much left over after that interaction? You know, what didn't I see? What did the heart not see clearly enough? If the heart had seen something more clearly, what suffering might have been avoidable? But it's going to be also really useful to share times when interactions felt really healing and enlivening. This is a poem from James Wright. It's called A Blessing. Just a simple example of how this can arise, how this marriage of intimacy and non-grasping. little moment. A Blessing. Just off the highway to Rochester, Minnesota, twilight bounds softly forth on the grass, and the eyes of those two Indian ponies darken with kindness. They have come gladly out of the willows to welcome my friend and me. We step over the barbed wire into the pasture where they have been grazing all day alone. They ripple tensely. They can hardly contain their happiness that we have come. They bow shyly as wet swans. They love each other. There is no loneliness like theirs. At home once more, they begin munching the young tufts of spring in the darkness. I would like to hold the slenderer one in my arms, for she has walked over to me and nuzzled my left hand. She is black and white, Her mane falls wild on her forehead and the light breeze moves me to caress her long ear that is delicate as the skin over a girl's wrist. Suddenly I realize that if I stepped out of my body, I would break into blossom. I like that just because it it just points to how simple a moment of intimacy can be. You know, we can ask, we probably should ask, what, if anything, is in the way right now? You know, wherever we're sitting, however we're sitting, 
however empty or full our belly right now, or confused or agitated our mind is right now, In all of these more simple moments where we don't have to be solving a problem with another human being or negotiating space with a partner or something like that, these more ordinary simple moments when we're just looking out the window or brushing our teeth or sitting and listening to Dharma talk, these are really good moments like sitting meditation, really good moments to be interested in this art, the spiritual art of relating. And uh, being interested in what freedom might be available here. So in a way we're, we're getting good at this embodied awakening, like really including the relating to the moment. And like, is there any freedom available in this moment. And of course, what often gets in the way (laughs) is this, uh, you know, what we find in ourselves, what we sense in others, is a swirling movement of desire and needs. And this is what we often, when we're around other people, especially people we know well, we you know, we've learned to be sensitive and as much as we're afraid of our own swirling of needs and desires, we also feel a little bit sensitive and overwhelmed by what we imagine other people's swirling needs and desires are. Because we don't want, you know, our attention to our own swirling needs and desires to be, you know, confused or um, covered up by somebody else's needs and desires. And this is the, you know, this is why cultivating wholesome relationships is so central to the awakening that the Buddha points to. Because there really isn't any freedom, any awakening if we don't know what to do in the great soup that we live, you know, where we're all human beings with needs and desires. And we tend to swing from thinking my needs, my desires are like if only I solve them and give myself what I want and what I need, then I'll be happy. And that doesn't work. And then we want to pathologize having needs and desires and pathologize other people having needs and desires. If only all of you, if only I didn't have needs and desires, then I'd be happy, then I'd be free. But I think really our path is much more about learning how to be right in that soup with all of these needs and desires that we hopefully are learning to sense in ourselves, have a more honest relationship with all my needs, social needs, sexual needs, power needs, needing, you know, the desire to contribute the desire to feel like I belong, the desire for affection and touch, you know, the desire to feel competent, like I belong here in, in life. 
the desire to feel safe in my body, safe in my community, you know, and to sense that everybody else has some similar but different set of desires and needs. And that makes this whole awakening and freedom project a lot more interesting that it's that it's going to arise in this complexity like of actual needs and desires as opposed to this romantic, romanticized, idealistic sense of somebody who no longer has needs and desires in some spiritual space where nobody has needs and desires. right? And then, of course, that's a real setup because we don't live there. <laughs> and I'm not sure there is a there there. you know. But I do know, right? we all know there is a here here, where, which is just this wilderness, this wild and very alive place of desire and needs. This is where we feel real, because it is real. This is how it is. This is from um, a book by Stephen and Andrea, or Andrea Levine, Embracing the Beloved Relationship as a Path of Awakening. They taught many years together, when and I both have, back in the day, in the 80s and 90s, got to do some of their weekend programs and they they really looked a lot at people's trauma and heartbreak and and just really bringing this loving presence and then a little later they in their kind of teaching career wrote this book together and this is uh, something really close to the beginning of the book a couple paragraphs <clears throat> They write, the distance from your pain, your grief, your unattended wounds is the distance from your partner. And we could just substitute not just our partner, but our friend and our parent, our sibling, our cat, our dog, our colleague at work, our neighbor. The distance from your pain, your grief, your unattended wounds is the distance from you know, your other. And the distance from your other, your partner, is your distance from the living truth, right? This life, this Dhamma, we say, the way it is. Your own great nature, he writes, or they write. Whatever maintains that distance, that separation from ourselves and our our beloveds, must be investigated with mercy and awareness. This distance is not overcome by one giving up on their space to another. This distance is not overcome by one giving up their space to another, but by both partners entering together the unknown between them. The mind creates the abyss, but the heart crosses it. A conscious relationship teaches us to treat ourselves and others as our only child and to do it mindfully. It does not break the heart. A conscious relationship is as healing and life-affirming 
as an unconscious, old-style relationship is at times harmful and life-denying. The harmful effect of an unconscious relationship is that it keeps us so small, dependent on external circumstances for our happiness. More needs than gifts are brought to such an entanglement. But a conscious relationship offers the possibility of relating across the gulf of I and other, all the way into the heart of our beloved. A conscious relationship allows us to remain conscious while in relationship. It's a whole new ballgame. So this is one of the basic principles we're going to be exploring, you know, over these next few weeks as we continue just the question, you know, what is a wholesome relationship? What is in the way of a wholesome relationship? And this question about, or this principle, investigating this principle, is it possible for there to be a healthy, wholesome relationship without intimacy? And what is it what does intimacy mean? And again, I really encourage us all, myself included, like just to keep exploring as we're sitting here. You know, what does it mean to be because we're in relationship, the five of us in this room, and even though we're not sort of in the shared space, all of us who are listening and even those of you who are listening hours later, days later, weeks later, you know, it's only my thought that I'm apart, that that's the separation. It's a thought. It's a very compelling thought, right? A thought that has a lot of momentum. You know, it's a very impactful thought, this thought of being apart. And when that, when the mind just loosens its grip on that thought, its attachment or identification, and enters into the immediacy of the present moment, you know, then we find that humility and that raw sense of exposure to the moment. So as I mentioned, we're we're finding that middle ground, that very alive middle ground where we're not pathologizing our needs and the needs of others that we sense. And we're not being swept away, feeling like, first I have to solve or address all the needs, my own, all the needs I sense in those around me that are bothering me because I know that they're, you know, you need something. And that's why, you know, even though, especially at a time like this where there probably are a lot of needs, and definitely a lot of uncertainty, we can feel compelled into action, you know, and we often notice it because we've checked the news five times in the last hour as if, you know, somehow being 15 minutes behind the news, you know, is life-threatening or something like that. And so part of what helps us cultivate wholesome relationships is to start valuing the uh, less and less the need for some conclusion. Who am I in this relationship? And what should I be doing? Like thinking we need to have a plan. What does it mean to be me in this relationship being skillful? 
So less of that and more of that place of humility where we we don't know who we are. We don't even have an idea of what the relationship is, but we're really sensitive. We're present. We're listening in a sense. And often the way in is just to realize there's a body here. And it can feel like, well, how is that going to help me, you know, have a nice relationship with my partner tonight or with my child or my whatever? But this is the thing we realize, like, when we're really in relationship with the present moment, like even using our body as a way in, we turn out to be in relationship with everything. And that's sort of what we're going to be discovering. And that's why it's useful to start with situations that aren't so intense and aren't so intensely triggering fixed stances. You know, so when you're at work and it's a, and it's a more intense situation for you, you know, it, practice, we, you know, we <laughs> should encourage ourselves to practice as best we can. But a lot of the learning might come in more simple situations where we feel safe enough to enter that place of humility and not knowing and just being like nothing but raw sensitivity and not even the five physical senses like seeing and hearing and feeling the body, maybe smelling and tasting, probably not much. But as we get good using the body as a gateway into the humility, sensitivity of the present moment, then as uh, this uh, passage I read from the book, feeling all of that woundedness of our sensitive heart, all of the social wounds we've been (laughs) carrying around, all the hurts, all the hopes, all the needs for affection and love and belonging, unmet needs. And just start learning, like, uh, I don't need to be afraid of being a needy, a socially needy human being, a socially fearful human being. I don't need to be afraid of being aroused and attracted. I don't need to be afraid of anything that might show up. So just to start where it's not so complex, not so intense, right? where it's more safe, so that we're learning to be okay being a human being. I mean, we have literally millions of years of social programming that was just handed to us through our genetic code And then we have the messiness of our upbringing and all of the distortions of our imperfect, you know, childhoods and strange, impactful friends who left this imprint and that imprint in our hearts and, you know, all of the TV we've watched and all of the other cultural programming that has come in. And all of that is sort of making our particular set of social needs and social desires and social fears and social anxieties the way they are, moment by moment. So the question is, you know, for us being students of this topic for these weeks, 
where this week, you know, when we think about going home, where are the places, where are the times when it's more likely that I'd be willing to be really honest about all that's moving in my heart? And to start where, you know, social situations that are more simple and safe, and then to always be interested in pushing the edge. Like to take that where we're learning to trust intimacy and that sense of social exposure, and then like not to lose that interest, that curiosity. And again, it's not about having a plan. Okay, I'm a Buddhist now, so this is what it's going to look like when I'm relating at work or relating with my partner or whatever. But So just like the opposite, not having a plan, but having a principle. I'm trusting the rawness of exposure. I'm trusting the capacity to feel whatever that mixture of need and want and fear and anxiety and buried, you know, the numbness of having, like, something is buried and I have no clue what it is. It's just like a numbness or a hardness that we feel sometimes emotionally in our hearts, in our bodies. Like, yeah, I'm going to enter. I'm going to walk through the co-op when I'm shopping or I'm going to, you know, walk down the street and I'm going to practice being raw and curious and inviting whatever that is to start to move more and more in an unrestricted like I'm not in I'm gonna practice not containing it, but giving it permission. So that that woundedness, whatever it is, you know, and that's gonna be different for each of us, of course, um, we're we're gonna start realizing that it has a lot to say. It can really inform and enliven our lives as social beings. And see, this is where we're going from thinking that all of that stuff is a ball and chain. You know, all the unfinished business and the pain that I've had for my life, all the difficult breakups, all the betrayals and not being seen and, yeah, not being recognized. That actually it has it has something to say and it has something a way of informing and helping me live my life as opposed to God I wish I didn't have all that baggage. And isn't that how we think? You know, we we're so sure that all that pain is really a dead weight that I have to drag around, as opposed to like a very dense, concentrated form of energy. That doesn't, like it's a lot of life energy and we can access it. We just have to find a way for it to release itself, to unwind. So it becomes, instead of a dead weight, an enlivening energy. And it really helps us understand what's here in the moment too. Because it's actually who we are. (laughs) We're all this, that's who we are. We are this social woundedness and genetic needs, social needs. You know, as humans, as mammals, are really designed to be in community, as messy as that is. 
And, uh, and it's kind of fun, you know, to begin to imagine that. It's like, I have so much programming that has been distilled through millions and millions of years of evolution. Altruism isn't something we created recently, you know. It got, it is born out of so much learning and how to navigate power, right? We have so much programming about how to do that dance where we sort of know how to yield to some people and know how to speak up and own space and own power when that's the appropriate way. And so how do we let that come? Because the thing about our psychological and emotional selves is that it's a pretty simplistic operation. So if we're repressing one thing, we tend to repress all of life. So it doesn't repression and numbness doesn't work as a strategy, right? It just we just start feeling like I don't feel alive anymore, and then we go looking for a cure. But the cure was we assumed that feeling what we feel is dangerous. So part of learning to have wholesome relationships is we have to learn to let let everything rip. We have to learn to let everything move. We have to change, even on an intellectual level, you know, as we see and we notice the stories that we have about the people we're in relationship. We want to use this, that, oh yeah, they're just a swirling movement of desire and need. I'm just a swirling movement of desire and need. Like we're kind of normalizing that base level of, each other, so that we're not, that will help us begin to go beyond the ways that we've learned to be afraid of the swirling movement of desire and need. Well, of course, you're a swirling movement. I wonder what they are. I have no clue, but I've, I can bet, and I'm over time, I'm more and more confident that on this level, on this ordinary relative level, that's who we all are. And we'll see it, especially in this more anxious and uncertain time with the virus, we'll see these very deep patterns of survival. You know, they're getting triggered in all of us. Even if your or my version of it is like, don't act like you're afraid. Okay, that's how that need to survive is getting expressed. It's like, be seen as somebody who's in control, you know, or is not afraid, or whatever our particular pattern is. So, it's very enlivening, even on this relatively intellectual level, to keep reminding ourselves as we're interacting, seeing each other, swirling and impersonal needs and desires. And it's just life energy. I mean, it's really the energy of nature. It's not a mistake. And we don't have to be afraid of it. We have to dance with it. And we can't dance with it and be unaware, Right? We have to be aware of our, our own. We have to be aware of the other. And um, it's totally dependent on intimacy, on like, oh yeah. And we have to retrain ourselves to see it in that way. Like, and so that, that will be really good for our small group discussion and, and tonight in a little bit 
I'll open it up for the chat, live chat. But just to begin to talk about our needs and desires in a more matter-of-fact, maybe clinical in some way, clinical way, but just normalizing that, yeah, that's how it is. Like part of our programming, I think I mentioned last week, as this sort of reptilian, you know, just want to survive, don't really care who else gets harmed in the way. Right? That's active sometimes. That's when, you know, we're looking at the frozen spinach and there are four left and you know, I'm taking all four. And then like just to be aware, oh yeah, that's that. Without telling ourselves that we should take all four or we shouldn't take all four. Or even that, like, how would I know how many I'm supposed to take? It's not clear. But what we want to do is just be aware of what's moving. And then the, ma- the mammal conditioning will say, well, there are probably other mammals. We share a lot of genetic code. Maybe I'll save some frozen spinach for somebody else. I'll take one. I'll take two. Or whatever. I'm sure a lot of us have had those moments recently where we were at some you know, buying something and there wasn't much of it left. And even in hindsight, we can go back to those moments. What was moving in my heart? Can I look at that? Can I feel that without being embarrassed? Like, can I see it as if I was a naturalist observing some creatures out in the woods or on the savanna? Oh yeah, this is what animals do. Yeah, I can see that. I'm not afraid of that. So a lot of what we want to be uncovering these weeks is the, are the natural laws of relating. First, we want to just get really clinical or honest about what is moving. You know, what are the powerful forces that govern our relating? And um, some of them aren't so pretty, but they're real. So we want to be honest about them. Others might be very beautiful and inspiring, and we want to be aware of those too. And we just want to be honest. And the Buddha talks about this in one of the discourses where he just realized that by observing his mind and the underlying motivations for his actions, he realized that it would be very helpful to divide up those underlying motivations or intentions in in terms of what's skillful and what's unskillful. So we're not judging the reptilian <laughs> survival power, you know, dog-eat-dog motivations. We're just noticing that when they're operating in the heart and mind through action, how the whole system of mind-body gets tight, gets contracted, and it kind of, reverberates out. Everybody tends to get tight around us too. And when other qualities are motivating action, motivating how we're relating, something else gets set in motion, something healing and beautiful. And it's it really brings home the question like, if all that matters is survival, we might, meet, we might be able to... Um, extend how long the body lives. But the quality of that life will be a very particular way. Right? So 
the movement from this sort of pure survival motivation for a living to a heart, a mind that's interested not in living as long as possible, but right, we're interested in being free while we're living for however long we live. Unshakably free. And what does that look like? How to be free as opposed to how to extend life. And this again, like I was saying, this will be a really good time to honestly acknowledge when what we're doing is just trying to survive without being interested in being free. And remember, orienting around being free doesn't mean we step in front of a truck to be run over or give away all our money or give away all our food. It just means that we're interested in being free and we're very curious about how the survival of ourselves and other others gets taken care of when we orient around freedom. And see, this is even different than like saying we orient around wisdom or orient around love. Because you might see that as we're orienting around freedom, then what shows up is a kind of natural love, a natural... Last week we talked about stinginess at this end, and a generous, generously open heart, generously unburdened and undefended heart, a heart that's not entangled by wanting, being a somebody that wants to survive. Right? Now, of course, most of our social conditioning will have roots in this kind of fear. Not only the fear to survive, but the fear to belong, the fear to be respected. Right? So social status is very much similar to physical survival. You know, I'm not sure we always can distinguish. That's why they, you know, I'm sure a lot of you've heard, you know, that public speaking can be more fearful for people than dying because it has to do with social exposure, right? So that, you know, they're often... And and probably this is also related to evolution because for so many millions of years, most of our social conditioning came when we were hunter-gatherers and the sort of smaller group being staying in the group was synonymous with survival. Because if you got kicked out of the group, you're not going to be able to survive very long until you, unless you found another group that would take you in. So this like belonging and not sort of being rejected is really closely linked. So we have a lot of roots in this fear-based conditioning. And we really need to kind of... There's no immunity from it without really sensing that fear and the hunger and the, um, you know, the how we use anger, how we use all these sort of forces to um, yeah, survive in one way or another, socially, physically. 
And one of the, you know, one of the real powerful things about spiritual insight is we start to see the profound limitations of thinking this leads anywhere. Where does this lead? It leads to, one, being really afraid and tight, and then you die, which is the one thing you cultivated not wanting to happen all life long. So, it, it, you know, the, the thing you've been fighting against is going to happen anyway, but all life long you've been cultivating it as the big boogie monster, and you don't want to get it, and it's coming, and you don't want it to happen. That doesn't sound like a good life. And the spiritual insight is one, seeing the limitations of that, getting interested in another way. And the thing is that that fear is still going to haunt us. But by really opening to this other, it actually undermines this fear of annihilation. Because this fear of annihilation, turns out, it's a construction of the mind. It doesn't exist in the way that it appears to us in our own heart and mind. The fear of death, the fear of annihilation, the fear of social rejection too. It looks really big. We've all had little tastes of this. You know that sort of classic teenage fear of being humiliated, being rejected, socially rejected. But most of us have had our own little version of, in our mind, at home maybe, facing down that fear. You know, where somebody doesn't want to go out with us anymore or we're not being accepted in some social group anymore. And we really look at what that feels like. And we, because we're not running from that fear, because we're not like doing whatever we can, but we just feel what it feels like. We feel actually empowered, like, I don't need to be in that group. Okay, that relationship's over, but I'm okay. I'll, I'll find my way. And that's such a powerful, it's a little taste of this freedom of non-dependence on the fear that the mind constructs, the fear of not belonging, the fear of death, the fear of humiliation, where we make peace. I mean, when and I, my partner and I, talk a lot because we're both teachers, you know, about that kind of embarrassment and fear that comes <laughs> when you're in front of a group and you, you know, you do something stupid or whatever it is, or you kind of lose your place. Or I did a... I sometimes mentioned I did a memorial service once. The whole thing, you know, it was an hour, hour and a half. And it was we were all standing at this memorial service because it was outside. And I realized only afterward when I was walking back to the car that the whole time my fly was down. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my shirt was tucked in. It was like there for everyone to see. No one had the good sense to gesture, <laughs> let me know. But I, I remember in that moment of realizing and zipping it up, like, my, there was like a real fork in the road. I could, the mind could really absorb into the drama of social humiliation or wisdom could see like, yeah, I could do that. And what's the point? Where does that lead? Right? And to realize that there's an option which is just to notice what it feels like to be an imperfect 
human being that does silly stuff, like leaving their fly down. And like whatever someone might thought, like, you know, our mind is very quick. So I could imagine like all the different things people might have thought, like that guy's a doofus or whatever. And like, well, make peace. I'm okay with people thinking that I'm a space cadet or whatever they might have thought. Like, yeah, I can live with that. And that's really empowering, all those little ways. So there's, of course, a lot more to say. Maybe I'll just read one poem that I think kind of points to this brokenness, and then we'll open it up for a chat for the last uh, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. This is a poem by Alice Walker. I will keep broken things. I will keep broken things. Again, by Alice Walker. I will keep broken things. The big clay pot with raised iguanas chasing their tails. Two of their wise heads sheared off. I will keep broken things. The old slave market basket brought to my door by Mississippi, a jagged hole gouged in its dirty dark oak side. I will keep broken things. The memory of those long, delicious nights swims with you. I will keep broken things. In my house, there remains an honored shelf on which I keep broken things. Their beauty is they need not ever be fixed. I will keep your wild, free laughter though it is now missing its reassuring and graceful hinge. I will keep broken things. Thank you so much. I will keep broken things. I will keep you, pilgrim of sorrow. I will keep myself. So we'll turn it now with experiment with the chat and I think Wynne will read some of the questions that people might have or comments even. I mean, one thing to unpack now just for, you know, the 10 minutes we have left is just to ask yourself, well, what kind of love naturally throughout the day, what kind of love do we long for in our lives? You know, because we all, you know, each of us our own particular variation, we have these stories, these words, you know, oh, the if only, but especially in terms of social experience. What kind of love, what sort of social connection do we long for the most? And here's the second part of the question. And what would that really give us if we got what we long for? Like imagine getting what we long for in terms of social connection, social love, social relationship. What do we long for? What would it give us? Just imagine, what do I long for? It might be that sort of classic soulmate, you know, a person that's just right for you and you're attracted to and all that. Might be the perfect puppy. <laughs> love you unceasingly. What do you long for? 
Wynn, what do you long for? <laughs> A lot of you know Wynn Fricky, the co-founder of Common Ground and one of our Dharma teachers, also my spouse. <laughs> I'll, I'll um, answer that after uh, I report this question that's come up. Okay. Because <laughs> I have to think about it. Um, so here's a question. Uh, how has your experience slash relationship with fear changed with practice? Maybe public speaking as an example, but really anything. Yeah. And that, I think, is a good barometer for the years of practice. I mean, I think of myself as a fearful type. And, uh, you know, it manifests in a lot of ways. And, you know, outwardly, it may not look that way for those of you who see the sort of public persona, but definitely in my uh, sort of personality and emotional kind of quality, the way this mind and heart has been conditioned. And so uh, I think one of the things I notice now that I'm so grateful for is uh, I'm my instinct, my spiritual instinct is to be interested in fear when it comes up. And I'm I'm especially interested when there's a fear that kind of more, I don't know if the word is, the best word is primal, but that surprising fear that, that uh, like a child getting spooked by the devil or by the mysterious unknown. When that comes up, it's like, because I'm operating now, having been a very, devoted student for 37, 38 years now, my mind operates most of the time with the presumption that there's nothing to be afraid of. And so then fear is interesting. And so when fear comes up, that like triggers that more uh, um, deeper programming, like, no, no, this is really dangerous. Then I'm kind of, uh, it's like I might get disoriented for a while, but I really want to find a time and place to befriend that. Like, what is that? Is it really scary? And I think that's really the attitude we want to cultivate around fear. It's like, what is this? Because the habit, the deep habit we have is that fear is bad. And the difference I see now is, I mean, I still have that condition, fear is bad. But now there's a stronger and stronger strand of conditioning which goes, is that really true? So I still have that conditioning, fear is bad, but immediately there's that other strand of conditioning. Is that really true, that fear? this fear is bad? This fear is scary? Right? And even something like death or humiliation. And... Uh, yeah, so I think I think that's probably what I how I'd answer that question about how has fear changed over time in my practice. Is there's this secondary strand now that's very strong. Well, this is interesting. Is this sense of fear what it appears to be? Because fear generally is this sort of warning sign, danger, danger, right? So now wisdom is going, is there danger? Now, sometimes there is physical danger, you know, and then it's sort of like, pay attention, like I'm standing too close to a ledge. Don't stand so close to that ledge. Don't drive so fast. 
be careful in this situation. You could say something that is that, that would be confusing for this person and cause harm. So we want that danger sign, but we want that other strand of conditioning that goes, you might need to pay attention here, but you don't need to be tight. You don't need to be afraid. So sometimes the fear sign is just telling you this is a place where you could cause suffering, so pay attention. But you don't need to be tight about it. That's extra and that's unnecessary. And that feels really, I'm really grateful how that's changed. So the heart's just lighter because I don't carry a lot of fear a lot of the time. It's there, of course, but it, it, it's not as chronic and heavy. Um, here's a question. Um, how do we figure out what we need? If I provide what the other person needs and vice versa, does the relationship become a transaction? I think the answer um, is not presuming that we're going to figure it out and really letting ourselves off the hook of figuring out that transactional uh, decision like what you're going to do and what they're going to do. And even if the other person is oblivious, we can be in that place where we're sensitive to our own needs and we're sensitive as best we can be to the other person's needs, including just if it's appropriate in the situation, what are your needs? Asking them, what are your needs? What do you need here? What would be helpful? So that we're doing our best to be sensitive to the swirl of desire and needs, and then we're dancing with it. And the, the dance is like we're not coming in with a plan, but we're presuming like skillful action, skillful words will arise out of this sensitivity to my own needs and the needs of the other person. And so that's why we want to experiment with situations that aren't so charged so we build some confidence that this actually works. I'm just going to be sensitive. You're dealing with your cat. It wants to go outside, but you've got this other stuff to do. So that, for most of us, would be a pretty simple situation not to charge. So instead of like neglecting not being sensitive to the cat's needs or neglecting not being sensitive to our own needs, just really take a moment and just realize like we're two mammals in this house with needs and desires, right? Move in and just see what kind of activity this way of relating comes out of being having a really honest, intimate relationship, what's moving in your heart and what you're sensing and the other person, the other beast's heart. Time for maybe one more win, your own comment if you want to add your two cents or whatever else is there. Yeah, I'm not sure I have anything clear to say except one one thing I think I've come to learn just is that the way that my swirl of desires and needs kind of plays out in relationship is really can look really different than, for instance, what your swirl of desires and needs might play out. And I realize I don't recognize it 
necessarily because it's different than mine. So there's just this wonderful sort of listening, you know, like like getting, um, yeah, like like it's not correct to project my experience on others, and and so yeah, so for me it's a combination of like when those swirls and desires arise in me. I really listen to them, like what's the taste of them? How do they feel in the heart? How do they feel in my throat for you know just like wh- how is this showing itself and and what are the images that come up and then so really knowing that and then um and then uh you know for you and with other people with whom I'm in relationship, it just feels like. It's really about listening deeply, you know, really as best I can, just to sort of feel and, and to be humble about it because my perceptions are just that, you know, <laughs> just my perceptions. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We should probably end here. So wishing everybody great safety out in our big swirling world and maybe learn how to take care of ourselves and our loved ones and Maybe find ways to support the well-being of everybody around us as much as we can. And please join in next Monday if it makes sense. And uh, feel free to send in your questions if you have any. Take care, everyone. Have a good night. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, Or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.